You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible is Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. Good morning, Father Paul. Good morning, Richard. Welcome morning, to the program. Everyone. Good morning. So we get to talk about something very interesting today, and that is this idea of the anti-Homeric epic. We love talking about the Bible as literature on this podcast, Father Paul, and it's always fascinating when we hear you reflect on the Bible and other literary traditions in the ancient world. So talk to us this morning about the anti-Homeric epic. Well, the impressive thing, and really impressive, to have at that time in the mid-third century a huge epic let's remember let's forget about inspiration and isaiah said and hosea said and so on it's the one bible the one story massive let's go for the word count the iliad is 147,000 words and the iliad and the odyssey together let's say 270,000 words now, the Bible, just the Old Testament, by the count, is 593,000 words, more than twice. I mean, it is incredible. Plus the fact that it was written in a Semitic language, and I said this several times, to be translated in Greek. So it's a double slap in the face of the Greeks. And you know, at that time, Homer was the major writer. I'm talking about epics. We'll talk in a while about also Plato and Aristotle. That is massive to produce such a literature whose grain is totally against the Greek epics. The Greek epics clearly glorify the human being. You have Achilles, you have Agamemnon, you have Ajax, you have Ulysses. Ulysses is on both the military prowess and also the cunning mind. Whereas the Bible, and we said this so many times, belittles the human being. Great alone and solely is God. So one has to conclude that there is something going on there that is anti, I call it, Homeric. And then it is also anti-Greek in the sense that it is anti-Plato's dialogues. The word count for Plato's dialogues is 665,000, which is a little bit less than the Old Testament. The only one who has a larger count is Aristotle. So let's begin with the epic one more time, but I need to repeat it so that the people will get it. I know it's very hard for the Orthodox to get it because Orthodox transformed the Bible, actually perverted it in making it an ode to the human being who is in the image of God. Obviously, it's a big joke. He's in the image of God and he disobeys God and he ends out of the garden. But to have this sustained throughout, and this allowed Paul to make his statement in Romans that no one is righteous, all have sinned, Gentiles, Israelites, Judahites. It's just bad news. Father Timothy Lowe told me that the topic of his paper is the pessimism <laughs> of the Bible. And that is important. Let me jump to the New Testament to show that it's the same pattern. How many of us 
And let's be honest, are usually frustrated with Paul. Paul says that he's a father, he's a mother, but he doesn't act like that. He's always nasty to the Gentiles whose servant he says he is. I mean, it's ridiculous. No one can stand Paul. Men cannot stand Paul, except those who think of him as a hero. Women can't stand him. Teenagers can't stand him. Priests can't stand him. Bishops can't stand him. Because it's not natural in that sense we understand. He tells the Gentiles, you are no better than the Jews. Let's start with that. If you don't admit to that, then you're not going to accept the word I'm telling you. And then he goes, obviously, against the Roman emperor. Now, on the level of philosophy, and I would like to touch on that, it voids completely something that, again, theology perverted, talking about the soul of the human being, even conflating the soul with the spirit. Notice in all our texts, our theology, we don't differentiate our spirit, our soul. It's the same thing. Well, it's not. In the Bible, only God is spirit. And spirit basically, as I repeat it, it's destructive. The mighty wind in Ezekiel at the beginning, on purpose, he says, Ruach Sa'ara, a mighty, mighty wind. And the soul is just the breathing in Hebrew. It's not a big deal. In Plato, the soul is as divine as God because it's an idea, idea, and God is an idea, and the Logos is an idea. In the Bible, it is not so. Nefesh in Hebrew and Arabic is your breathing until you stop breathing, and that's it. Let me go on an aside, because we need to learn these things. We say that life is in the soul and in the blood. Technically, it's in the running blood, the plural, the bloods, the running blood. And we can see it on TV. The first thing the police person does to check whether someone has died or not is the pulse, which is the blood, and the breathing. If neither is there, practically the person is no more. That's it. So... These two items, let me repeat, the belittling of the human being, especially the heroes, usually when the human being is poor, on the contrary, the Bible defends that person. I'm talking about the big guys. Let's go for David, for instance, and Solomon, belittles them completely. And the belittling of the wisdom, and that will appear more forcefully in the Ketubim and then in the New Testament. Human wisdom is not divine wisdom. Divine wisdom is expressed in his commands. And let me end on this point, on the issue of ethics, where people drive me crazy by saying the good and the bad ethics. Like we have a class on ethics in all seminaries and people start quoting Aristotle because he is the one who wrote about ethics. In scripture, there is no ethics. I remember in one of the comprehensive exams, my younger colleague asked a student, OK, gentlemen, tell us the theory of Father Paul regarding whether there is ethics in the Bible. And the student smiled. I said, there is no ethics. Is good what God says is good, period. It is good for you not to eat from that tree. Why? You don't need to know, period. It is his will that is always good for you as the will of a good parent. Even mothers in the United States of America answer their children because I say so, period. That 
is not acceptable for a society that was built on dialogue. You say, and I say, and I try to convince you of my point, and I have to counteract your point. This is the dialogues of Plato. On purpose, I expanded the topic from anti-Homeric to practically anti-Greek culture of that time. It is anti-Greek, epic, anti-Greek philosophy. And both, you notice, both the philosophy and the epics, although the Greek philosophers make fun of those who wrote the epic and so on. But practically, they both agree on something, which is the value of the human being as is. Let me go again on another aside that shows you that it is so. Remember the issue between the Jews of Palestine and the Seleucids. It was the circumcision because the Greeks would not accept anything that would touch the completeness and fullness of the human body as is it reflects the divine. And to circumcise someone is really a slap in the face of that attitude. So here we go, we have a series of points, it's not just one, that show that the Bible was definitely written as anti plus and we talked about that anti-king and anti-temple so the definition of that as i say in many of my books and people get frustrated with that that uh, the bible is an anti-book people don't like that they like the positive usually the bible does not cajole anyone <laughs> the joke is that it cajoles itself it tells you i am perfect the way i am and we have to get used to that. And the more knowledge we have of other literature, real knowledge, then we will notice this just to the hearing. Have someone read you the Bible and you will be stunned very early. Adam is not what the fathers of the church say about him. Both in the epics of Homer and in the Bible, there is the struggle of the human being to do the will of the god or the gods and in the epics either succeeding or failing in scripture failing do you see a parallel between the way that this struggle is depicted or is there an essential difference in the way this is depicted how human beings do the will of god or the gods yes very clearly i agree with you that there is a struggle but there are some people who succeed i mean ulysses Odysseus. No way you're going to conclude that he did not succeed and he was not a hero on both levels. It's impossible. It's just the mood of the story. And to make someone a hero, you have to have a struggle. It's not the struggle that is the issue. The issue is that everyone fails at the end because you have to do everything that God wants, and it is impossible. The effort in the epic is ultimately to show that the human being, at least some, was a hero, and we make them semi-divine, like Hercules and so on. So I don't believe it's the same thing. But the interest of the human being is basically the same. You have to deal with the fate of the human beings. And the Bible goes the opposite way. And I say again, it shows that the aggressor failed. It is as though it's telling the Seleucids, the heirs of Alexander, that you have to learn our Hebrew, not only we have to learn your Greek. And then it shows that Alexander failed. 
according to the Greeks, he succeeds, but according to the scripture, he failed. And I have my thesis. We can discuss it in conjunction with someone else. The Philistines that come from the sea and Goliath and so on. That's Alexander the Great for me, very clearly. And you have a shepherd, remember, that uh, <laughs> just give him the death blow. It's very impressive. Anyway, that's the way I would look at it. Let me repeat. The topic is the same. The interest is the same. It's the human being, obviously. But the solution is different and opposite. Plato's dialogues, I mean, you have people debating with one another. Remember, he has the academy, the school. It's not an easy thing. It's painful. But ultimately, it bows down to the human spirit. Ecclesiastes, in the original Hebrew, you have the rare reference to the human soul as being a spirit. Remember, in Hebrew, these two words are connected through the breathing. But then it applies the same word to the animal. We know where the spirit of man goes and where the spirit of the animal goes. They go down in the same way, meaning they disappear. Obviously, the translations play with that. But in the original Hebrew, you have in both cases ruah. So I say to the people who say, but the human being is different. He has a spirit and the animal does not. Well, read Ecclesiastes. You talked about the dialogues and how that's influenced the way that we respond to commandment. Commandment is a directive that cuts through the fog, but that demands trust that the wisdom that's driving the commandment is for your benefit. Can you talk about that tension between commandment and the approach of the dialogues where there's a give and take? In the Bible, God does not dialogue. I mean, we have these stories that he dialogues, but when he dialogues is to tell you, you better settle what I want. It's like the American mother. The children can debate with her for one and a half hours. In her mind, we're going to get exactly to where I want you to get. We have to hear the entire story whenever God dialogues. And John Chrysostom picked that up in his introduction to Matthew. He says, in the beginning, God dialogued with the human beings, Adam, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But then when the people sinned, that's how he puts it, he decided to stop dialoguing and he sent them a written text. I mean, Chrysostom is not to be equaled ever. He really captured what the Bible is saying because he accepted the text as is. He believed that these stories happened. It doesn't matter. What matters is that he heard the stories as such. So ultimately, this is reflected in the pre-Abrahamic story where God gives Adam a commandment. That's the content of the first so-called dialogue between him and Adam. In chapter 3, he dialogues with him. But in chapter 2, he gives a command. That's it. Because the assumption, there is always an assumption, like people can tell me what a parent can be a bad parent. Yes, I mean, you can enter, and then we enter into Plato's dialogue and ask the psychologists and so on. But there is a basic assumption, even among the psychologists, that your parent, his duty is to look for your good. Otherwise, society doesn't work. People assume that even with governments that function as a senior. The assumption is that the elder knows more 
and thus for instance when the elder takes care of a baby and teaches the baby to walk or bike or speak we cannot argue each time whether he's right or wrong it's the basic natural assumption but in the dialogues you have an opinion i have an opinion we debate technically there is no seniority in the dialogue again to go on an aside remember in the classroom my students were very unhappy i said i do not dialogue with you you sit down and i speak i dialogue with my peers someone who understands as much or as close or more the bible with that person i dialogue but in the classroom i teach and remember that in the sunday school you have to teach the children not dialogue with them and that shatters the ego that when you enter the classroom you always think that i in the classroom there is only one i and the rest are a flock together can you imagine how people debate whether god really is right in the bible even martin buber entered into that he was a jewish german philosopher you know he's not always right in his position for samuel against saul or theology it doesn't put it this way but it always tries to defend the correctness of god i mean where do you see in the bible that god needs you to defend his correctness so it's a mentality i agree it's very hard but that's the name of the game the bible will always be there to be taken as is or to be left alone as is what troubles me in the approach of theology so it's not something only modern you know is that people want to reshuffle the bible to make it something nice notice how the christians always speak about the bible the greatest of human literature and usually in the west human means the western and, and they want to include it as something very powerful which makes sense and so on and so forth and that's why what can we do except to recite as psalm 1 says the bible to the people my classes are monologues we use words dialogue you need a person speaking back and forth and not just saying yes sir and yes sir between a corporal and a general there is no dialogue you hear the other saying yes sir yes sir yes sir yes sir we say monologue and we belittle it unless it's a monologue in a stage act something like an aria and so on exodus through the toronomy is practically a monologue by god or by moses either way it doesn't matter Joshua 24 it's a monologue obviously at the end the people told him that they agreed but he talked all the time and they said yes sir if we want to continue but there is no debate notice how god with the prophets blocks any debate otherwise it won't end he tried it with amos you know people assume that amos was the first prophet historically and so on. but i like that i use it to talk to my students well he tried it and he said look friends it's not going to work so from now on i'm not going to dialogue with the prophets that's why his call is pushed to the end of the book the bible is very smart all the rest of the calls are at the beginning of the book with Amos at the tail end he gave him trouble if you trust the wisdom of the bible or you're willing to trust a teacher or at least give a teacher a chance to share something objective with you the best possible scenario for a disciple is a monologue 
which requires obedience, that's the other key word, because this monologue of the father, take a parent that teaches you to walk or to talk or to do things. It's a command. He's telling you to do things in a certain way. So we have to be very careful here not to listen as though you're listening to music when you put the radio on. No, it's something you have to do. That's why your use of trust is important. Otherwise, the trust is mental trust, which is non-functional in the Bible. It is the trust in the word of command that it is good for you even when it sounds bad. Let's go for an example, the example of the thorn of the flesh in Paul. I mean, it's impressive. Where did he get it? And then in the text, he says he didn't get it at the beginning. And then he got that that thorn of Satan is there for the good of everyone because it shows the power of God in Paul's weakness. This text is the beyond of the beyond, if you like. And obviously, you have to trust at the end. Paul trusted. He said, okay, if you say so, I'll stick with it. That's the point that one has to stress and not once again a mental acquiescence of what the other person is saying. That's why Paul does not remember in 1 Thessalonians the faith and the love of the Thessalonians, but he remembers the work of their faith and the labor of their love. That is no hallmark card. Fantastic, Father Paul. Very helpful episode. Thank you very Thank much, Thank you Father. very much. Take care. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.